God, we don't deserve what you have done for us, even this morning. And we want to mark it in our minds as just another evidence among many of your kindness to us, Lord. And also, Lord, we want to mark this in our minds as evidence or proof of what we were made to do and the way of life that makes the most sense and that is to esteem you with others shoulder to shoulder to see you high and lifted up and to respond God with our bodies and our minds and our voices Lord, that's what our life is supposed to be about. And we were blessed, God, just now to have a microcosm experience of really what the whole deal from the cradle to the grave is meant to be. So, Lord, we want to mark that as well. And thank you. God, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your spirit gives us eyes to see what once we could not see. Thank you for lifting yourself up in our midst, Father God. We pray that you would continue to do so as we open your word. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. You can be seated. continue our month of future preachers of America. It's the, it's the FFA for preaching. Uh, you, don't, you don't get the cool corduroy jackets, though, unfortunately. Uh, today, we're blessed to have Caleb Combs with us again. Caleb was here you know, a number of months ago. Um, he's the brother-in-law of the birds. The birds are here. Hi, birds. Uh, so uh, we're continuing with the series, and people have been asking me what I've been about, mostly pacing Pacing, like, what have you done for the last three weeks when you haven't preached? Like, mostly pacing and wondering why I exist. No. Uh, <laughs> I've, had, I've had an enormous opportunity to just read, like, water, like a fire hydrant level of reading and also connecting with, with many of you and with others in the community and so forth. And so uh, this week we have Caleb, and then next week we have Mr. Roby, who's out trying to kill a deer right now. So pray that he is successful so I can get some deer sausage. And uh, anyway, without further ado, Caleb, why don't you come up and share with us? All right, is this thing on? Am I good? I'm not good. Still not good. I'm colorblind. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm really colorblind. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a it's a it's a daily struggle. Oh man, so good to be with you guys. Let me get this thing opened up. And while I'm doing that, if you would open your Bibles up to Acts 16, we're going to start in verse 16 and read through verse 40, read through verse 40. Oh man, it's good to be with you all, it's good, it's good to be singing and just recalibrated. I know, I don't know about you guys, but we can, we come in and we can, we can feel the waves of the world. And this is just a wonderful retreat and the, the kindness of the Lord to address us and for his spirit to be with us 
in his word. It's not, we're not, we're not doing some kind of show here. This is, this is the Lord. And we're so grateful for his grace that he would meet us so kindly, people that are so undeserving. So let's, um, let's read Acts 16 together and dive in, starting in verse 16. This is God's word, kindly addressing us this morning. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowds joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. And everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of those who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And he, ba he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. 
And when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they had heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and then they had seen when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you first for your word. We want to thank you that you revealed yourself to us because apart from you revealing yourself to us in your word, Lord, we would be lost. We wouldn't know about you. We wouldn't know as this jailer asked this question of how, how can I be saved? Lord, that is our question. And we're so grateful that you have answered it so effectively and completely in your son. We come here as a church and we are grateful for what you have done for us by grace through a simple faith, a trusting, open-hand faith of what you and your promises have given to us in the cross of Christ. Lord, I ask for your spirit. Lord, I ask that your spirit be among us as we know wherever your word is preached, it's true. But Lord, we, we need you in these moments. Lord, please work in our hearts. Work in our hearts in these moments together. In these verses, teach us about you and about the gospel. May we walk away with a further and deeper gratefulness and understanding of how you have saved us from our sin and how this is the, the largest and greatest reality that we could ever understand about what you have done for us. It's your name we pray. Amen. In recent years, maybe, maybe it's not recent, I'm going to say 10 years, at least by the time I became self-aware of it, I think that genealogies have been a hit. People doing, you know, all these different tests, you know, swabbing your mouth, hey, who am I related to, where am I from? And everybody, I think, it's no... It would it'd probably be no surprise that everybody in this room, some immediate family or friend is is into it, you know, and they, they brag about what percentage of where they came from. And I, I think the draw to it is because it gives us a sense of identity and belonging. It, it shows, you know, hey, this is where I came from. You know, my, my family, my mom's side came from Sweden. They moved down to Florida. They started the railroad. Cool story. Awesome identity. Um and when I was in uh, school for, for seminary, I had a, a theology professor. It was tongue-in-cheek. It was, he was joking, but he was also kind of serious. He had his spiritual genealogy that he would show us through his different Ph.D. advisors. He could trace it all the way back to John Calvin as a way to assure us that what we're receiving in class is orthodox and good, and we could also brag to other people about being taught by John Calvin. And, and I, I, I just that's a weird flex, man. I, if you... Whatever floats your boat, you know? What we're looking at in Acts 16 is another spiritual biography for all of us in this room. Um, the Macedonian call in Acts 16, verses 9 and 10, 
is important for us. I want to read this real quick before I finish this point. Verse 9 and 10 says this, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Where we're at in Acts 16, the, the demon-possessed slave girl, the beatings of, of Paul and Silas, the Philippian jailer, Philippi is in Macedonia, and for all of us that, well, I'm going to speak for myself. I went to public school, didn't pay attention in, in geography. Macedonia, that's Europe. Church, when Paul went to Philippi, that was the first time the gospel got to Europe. And in mustard seed form, that, that changed Western civilization. We, in many ways, sitting in this room, benefit from this story. This is our story in, in, in not Philippians 16, Acts 16. When Paul is here suffering and, and declaring the authority of God and the jailer <laughs> comes to the Lord and we see the Philippian church, we see that Paul and Silas visit Lydia and the brothers. That church is the seed of, the Europe, of, of our church. And eventually, the good news that, that we hear today enjoy is because of this. So I want, I want us to let that sit in as we're reading this story. This isn't just a episode that is meant to teach us virtue, though it does. And it's not just gospel-centered, wonderful, you know, news. This is, this is our family story, in a sense. Um, this missionary, missionary journey uh, changed the world. And so if I could say one thing to summarize and if one point to take away, it'd be this. this is, I mean, these are a lot of verses, so let's, let's try to summarize it. Um, Though the gospel of Jesus may lead us to suffer, it is the anchor of our present joy, and it is the only hope for a dying world. That is what I believe this text is teaching us today. So let's also, the way that we're going to break this up, we're going to break it up into three different episodes. Three different episodes, we're going to look at this demon-possessed slave girl, we're going to look at the persecution of Paul and Silas, and then we're going to look at the Philippian jailer, which is one of the dearest stories, I think, in the book of Acts. So looking at verse 16 through 18, what we see here is a little bit of a prologue to the action. We have um, three characters that, that Luke gives us in Philippi, really interesting characters. We have Lydia, a religious woman. Then you have this oppressed uh, demon-possessed slave girl, and then you have this retired, likely a retired Roman soldier who is a jailer. Um, the, the interesting Philippian church, you know, um, that, that, that's the crew, that's the church plant right there. Um, and uh, what, what, what Luke is doing for us is he's setting up really how Paul and Silas get to the jail. And though this is a prologue of sorts, there is much to glean from the story. So in verse 16, Luke sets it by giving us that, that, that Paul and Silas are on their way to the place of prayer. That's where Lydia, remember the place of prayer, a couple of verses before with Lydia, same place. So they're living life in Philippi, and as they're going to the place of prayer, they see a girl. She is, has a couple of descriptors. She is a slave girl. She is, uh, has a spirit of divination. 
she has earthly masters, and she makes her masters a lot of money through telling oracles. So there is a lot going down with this individual in Philippi. And this happens over a couple days. So this girl, what I think is what's, what's important to note is her and then her message. And there is a, a kind of difficult verse that we're going to tackle. So this second character, what I want you to note, this slave girl has physical masters and she has spiritual masters. Very clear that she is being oppressed and these physical masters are profiting from her oracles. The spiritual master here, the spirit of divination, in, in the original, the word is literally translated as a python spirit. And you can see why that didn't make it to the ESV. Um, that doesn't really help me out. It, it is a clear reference by Luke to a, a god and a guardian of a local pagan temple that had girls that were prophetesses that you could pay money and consult the gods. So this isn't, though you read this, and you know if you're opening up Mark or, or Matthew or Luke, and you see Jesus walking down the street and there's a demon-possessed person, th- th- this is similar in one sense, but very different in another. This isn't just a person who is demon-possessed. This is an individual oppressed by a spirit with religious and economic ramifications. It is deep oppression here. And uh, I found Daryl Bach very helpful on this point to help us as a modern reader understand what is happening in this text. He says this, In the ancient world, magic and oracles were often combined and were used first to protect a person from misfortune, to attack another person or issue curses, to win others over, or lastly, to secure auricular utterances. Say that word five times fast. To most readers from highly modernized cultures, all of this is very foreign. But to the ancient world, when this slave girl is called a magician, it conjures up this kind of background and association. And this helps explain Paul's nervousness and reaction to her declarations about him. So when you see that this scene's been going on for a couple days and you see that Paul is nervous and becomes annoyed, you have to realize this is... If he was to do something coming into Philippi, he, it's not, he's not just helping her. There are, it, would, it would be giving him a lot, of, uh, a lot of marketing he's not particularly looking for. It's not like, it's not like Paul forgot his evangelism tracks you know, in Asia, and he's like, okay, well, I can't you know, share the gospel. It was strategic. It was strategic why he did this. And, and remember, he's here because of the Macedonian call. He believes that God called him to these people to share the gospel. So for you to take away that it's a, you know, like, oh, he's annoyed and, oh, shame on you, Paul. No, you've got to look at in context what, what is going around the text, what is going on. So let's look at her message. So on the surface, this seems like a pretty legit summary of the gospel, does it not? These guys are servants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming the way of salvation. You know, we, we, oh, yeah, check. I agree with that, you know, like retweet, I'm there. Um, but it's, it's not, it, it, it's a little different, you know, and it, maybe, maybe you're there like I was, you're reading this, you're like, I'm really struggling to see the problem with this verse that sounds really good. Why would you, why would that be the crux of, of there being 
a change in this girl's life? Why, why did this elicit the response it did from Paul? I think it's important uh, to say just off the get-go, I say this all the time, he who defines the words wins the arguments. And, and this, this, this holds true. What, is, what does she mean by servants? What does she mean by the Most High God? What does she mean the way of salvation? And we're thinking about this as 21st century Christians sitting in Kansas City in a church believing the gospel. So we're like, yes, but we have to think about it. This is, this is new territory for the gospel, new territory for the church. And what she means by slaves, it's derogatory. It's, it's not, it's not when, when Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Christ, as Christians, we go, yes, I want to be that. That is, that fills me up. I want to go there. It's not deflating. That, that's something that as Christians, we want to, I want to be more like Paul in that. I want to have a greater understanding of what it means to be a servant of God. That's not what she meant. It was derogatory. It was, it was a mindless, chained up, subordinate subordinated, you know, it was bad. It wasn't good. The second thing is that most high God was a generic reference to God. And, and again, you got to think about the context of Macedonia, Zeus. That's who they're thinking of. When they says, oh, they serve the most high God. So they, they have nailed Paul and Silas as preaching a message from their pantheon of gods. No problem. We, we would, as Macedonians, agree with this. And then lastly, um, the way of salvation in the, in the original, it's a little more vague, and it could be taken as indefinite, a way of salvation. That changes the meaning. And so what we see with this slave girl is that her message misrepresents the identity of Christians. It misrepresents the Christian God, and it misrepresents the nature of our salvation. If Paul was triaging, this became a first-tier issue. That's not me. That's not my God. That's not what we're proclaiming. And the enemy of God was redefining the gospel message. I want you to hear this. The best our enemy can do is distort the message of the gospel because he does not have a better message to give. That's what we see in this. We have to distort it. And that's that's what was happening here with the Spirit. And so... Let's look at what Paul does, his response. Verse 18, note what he says. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. The power to free this girl came from Jesus. This isn't magic. This isn't like there is power in the name of Jesus. Don't hear me saying that. But this isn't magic. It's more than that. It's not invoking magic. You're invoking, and he was invoking the divine authority of our creator. This was the king of heaven, the kingdom of God breaking into Macedonia. Oh, you think this is a Roman colony? Guess what? Christ's kingdom is coming in. That's what this was. This was our risen Lord through his spirit working in Paul to do what he had done so many times before when he was on earth, proclaiming the rule and reign of God. And so there's three things I want, I think we can take away from this little episode Specifically, the first thing I think this is really important for us is that the Bible does not shy away from describing our world as suffering or sinful. This woman was legitimately oppressed and a victim in the true meaning of the word. That might be overused in our culture today, but it is 
Luke is making abundantly clear in this verse that this girl was oppressed by physical masters and a spiritual master. She had no freedom. And this is the world that we live in. We live in a Genesis 3 world. And if you haven't heard that, that is a saying that, that we say in my household all the time. Genesis 3, the fall of man. We don't live in Eden. We live in a fallen world where sin touches everything. And sin is hurting everyone. And for us as Christians, a robust Christian worldview has a thorough understanding of sin. The second thing is that just like this girl, every person, apart from the grace of God, is a slave, a slave to sin, a slave to the desires of the world. In Ephesians 2, it say that we're children of the devil. That's the state of everybody. That's the base. And then lastly, Jeff Perswell, a pastor in Louisville, he says this, though the Bible describes all sorts of legitimate powers, it never describes rivals to our God. We see that here. And maybe you can relate in some way to this passage before we move on to feeling overwhelmed. Maybe you're just sitting here like, yeah, I, I, I feel like the weight of the world. I, I, am, I am being used and abused by, by the world. I, I am very aware of sin, Caleb. Well, the good news, the good news is still, still to come. We'll, we'll, we'll parse it out more. But the gospel applies even there. The power of Jesus has no bounds. So let's, let's move on uh, quickly to the persecution of Paul. Let's look at verses 19 through, through 24. Luke very effectively sets this scene for, for Paul and Silas' persecution by setting it not in terms of what he was being accused of, but it was really they, it was a financial reason. That was why they incurred persecution. They're, they're, they're freeing... Jesus got in the way of, of making money. And it's very apparent by the way there's a word used, a word that means cast out or to come out. The first time is when Paul uses it. Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. The second time. And it came out of her. And the third time, we see in verse 19, but when her owners had saw that their hope of gain, ESV says, was gone, or literally, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain had come out of her. So the scene that Luke's setting is that Paul and Silas were being persecuted. That hinges on the loss of financial gain from these men. The argument that they throw out, which it's funny because it's like, oh yeah, they don't have customs and stuff. They're, 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 they're teaching customs and practices that we don't approve of. We like making money. <laughs> Like that's really the that's the subtext, but the argument that they use is that they're outsiders and they're bringing ideas that aren't appropriate for Roman citizens to use, and they publicly humiliate them and beat them. When when Paul references in his epistles of being beaten with rods, Christian, this is one of those areas. This is it. And this isn't just like a spanking. This is this is a beating. This would never happen today in America. None of us have a context for being beaten like this, especially for our religion. Though, there is much reason, and, and there are many ways that we could relate, and we can relate, and we likely will relate 
to persecution. But not in this physical sense. This is, this is graphic when you read this. And it's heartbreaking because you saw, we see Paul, guys, we're, we're there. This is an episode. We're, we're walking with them in Philippi. They're going to the place of prayer. They're starting a church. They're preaching the gospel. And this girl is coming and she's, she's declaring a false message. And because they took some $20 bills from those guys, they get dragged out and they're beaten for their faith. It's heartbreaking. And then there's this, this double entendre in, in this episode, this irony that is rich. They beat them, and then they turn to the jailer, and what do they say to the jailer? Hey, keep them safely. Jailer's like, well, okay, not a high bar here. I can do that. Um, of course, what they meant was don't let them escape, but what we as the reader come across Keep them appropriately. Do justice. So the first thing that we see with this episode is that persecution comes for being a citizen of heaven. This is not an unfamiliar idea in in the Bible or in church history. There are two kingdoms afoot. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And because of our citizenship, because we have been saved from the city of man, from destruction, been moved over to the city of light and the city of brotherly love, of, 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 of divine love and of grace, we will incur persecution. Given the world that we live in, just generally speaking, we're going to suffer. Again, Genesis 3, we see that in the first, the first bit. But given our state as Christians, we will incur persecution. And I think that when we look, um, if we can remember as far back in, in Acts about Stephen, I want you to hear this. When we incur persecution, God commends us and rewards us for this. We see Jesus standing, looking at Stephen. It's also for the sake of Christ that we're persecuted. So not everything falls under persecution. It's not, it's not a direct correlation. Well, I'm a Christian. Something bad happened, so suffer for the gospel. Um, I had a guy in my community group. He was a Bible college student, and he... Um, he was, uh, he was 18, loves the Lord, good guy, but uh, he was playing with a bonfire, and the fire was kind of killing the vibe. It was going down. So he was like, hey, I got a great idea. Let me take this gasoline and pour it on the fire. So he does that, and of course, the gas can explodes on his leg, and he has burns, and Taylor's fine, by the way. Uh, but the narrative after that was, I'm suffering for the gospel. I'm, no, you're, you're, you're suffering the result of being a fool. That's a, Proverbs has a category for this. And for us as Christians, we need, there, are, there, is, there is appropriate suffering. Like if you, you touch a hot stove or you play with fire in a fire or gasoline in a fire. What Paul and Silas, this wasn't just like a silly decision. This was persecution. And suffering for the sake of Christ for a watching world is a testimony to the worth of God. It actually, and it is, and I think has been, the majority of the church's history, the greatest form of evangelism. How you suffer tells the world. How you endure persecution for the name of Christ is a tell of what you think of God, of your hope, of what you hold on to, your anchor. 
And then lastly, I want to say this about persecution, because this is, if I could talk to young Caleb, it would be this. Being faithful in persecution isn't looking for persecution. It isn't fleeing from it by compromising, but being faithful in persevering it. Persevering it. One of the most beloved stories in the early church is of Polycarp. He lived in 156 AD, and he was a Christian, and he was on trial solely for being a Christian. And the governor of Rome promised his release if he would but deny the faith. Just, just deny it. That's all you have to do. Just in word, just do it. Just in word. We won't kill you if you would just deny this and write on this nice piece of paper that you did that. You could live. And Polycarp's response. I hope that's our response. He says this. For 86 years, I have served him, and he has never done me wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? And because he persevered, because he stood in the face of opposition for the gospel, because he said, I treasure heaven more than earth. He was burned at the stake, but it wasn't effective. So they had to stab him because the fires failed to consume him. He suffered for the gospel. And there's many ways that we can currently see persecution for the Christian faith. Uh, For us, we can see how the world is attacking our view of what man and woman is. What, what, What defines us as man? What is marriage? These are all things being attacked, and I, and I think it's, it's not just an openness to it, a tolerance to it. It is uniformity of opinion on it. There's, there is a mob, alive and well, looking to, to see if they could break us to conform. Just sign this paper. Hey, hey, listen, I know, I know you're working here, and I know you're a Christian, but just put on this piece of paper you know, that you affirm this position of marriage. It's okay. You can secretly hold this. Or just think about gender roles um, or pluralism, the idea that there's multiple ways to be saved. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways that we can suffer. And this passage speaks of three different ways of suffering, suffering through sin, suffering through persecution, and suffering via circumstance. I think for us, it's, it's dealing with this fear of the mob with Paul and Silas, and what we're going to see with the Philippian jailer, a fear of death. And what do we do with this? And with that being said about suffering, I I think suffering is something that every Christian and church must prepare for. And, and, And here's my hot take. I think it's something that we need to prepare for beforehand. It better serves us than to do it in the moment. I found a very helpful quote from Francis Anderson. He says this about suffering. Men seek an explanation of suffering in cause and effect. Men seek an explanation of suffering in cause and effect. They look backwards for a connection between prior sin and present suffering. The Bible looks forwards in hope and seeks explanations, not so much in origins, as in goals. 
the purpose of suffering is seen not in its causes, but its results. God making all things right and well in the city of God is my hope. Being eternally secure in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he took all of my sin and gave me all of himself and his righteousness, that's my only hope. And this leads us to the third point, which is Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer. The result of suffering, guys. What an example we have in this text. So we see suffering. We're trying to get an idea of suffering. We see persecution. How should Christians respond? One of the questions we have when we read the book of Acts is, is this descriptive? Is Luke just telling us a story or is this prescriptive? Am I supposed to be taking this like in my quiet time? Should I be greatly annoyed when I meet somebody that's demon-possessed? The answer is no. No, please don't do that. Run. Call Chris. <laughs> I think that this is prescriptive. I think this is prescriptive. When we encounter various trials and suffering, we ought to have our happiness in such a place that it is out of reach, that we would be joyous. Even, even in a jail. We see that the jailer obeyed. He, he took the keep them safely very seriously. And he moves them into the inner prison. So the innermost part of the prison. And he puts their feet in stocks. So there's probably not a lot of light. They're in a lot of pain. They've been beaten. They're cold. Haven't eaten. I mean, it is, it's horrendous. And yet we see verse 25 in the middle of the night. They're recounting the events of Philippi. They're thinking about Lydia. Oh, man, you remember we came here for the Macedonian call. God has called us to preach the gospel. And we met Lydia. You remember Lydia? Oh, she was religious. And it was, that was, that was a easy, she, she got it. She got it. You remember how happy she was when she accepted the gospel? And you remember freeing that girl? She was following us. You were, Paul, you were kind of annoyed. Yeah, I was. I was kind of annoyed. But, but, but we freed her from, from oppression. And we suffered for the gospel, in pain, uncomfortable, what are they caught doing? Singing and praising God. They're joyous. And for us in a watching world, people, the prisoners are watching. What in the world did these guys have to rejoice about? Their hope is out of reach to the dying world. And it is a testimony to the worth and worthiness of God. The application here is easy. It is Christian joy. Christian joy is a state of contentment that is rooted in our future hope. It's not rooted in certain circumstances, but in the reality of the cross of Christ. And our happiness is out of reach because it's not found in earth. And this is, there are appropriate, you'll hear conversations about happiness versus joy. Happiness is when you're in your circumstances and joy is this internal thought, but just let's just do a quick heart check. If you find yourself swayed by your circumstances, that might be that your anchor and your joy is found something here on earth. And I raise both my hands with that. That's typically what my wife points out to me. Hey, Caleb, what are you putting your hope in? And I'm like, touching wood. Okay, got it. I'll go do a quiet time. <laughs> 
And so what, what happens next? They're praising, they're praising the Lord. They're in the innermost parts. And as if heaven was vindicating its saints, an earthquake hits. An earthquake hits. It reminds us of the day of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord promised in Joel of, of heaven and earth shaking and trembling. A day where a day where the righteous will be vindicated and the unrighteous will be punished. We see that Paul and Silas are freed. Their bonds are broken. And we also see that it is a functional condemnation for the jailer. It's a means of saving the jailer and his household. In Joel, the book of Joel, the, the outline of the book is pretty, pretty simple. Israel, Jerusalem is suffering from a plague of locusts, so much so, and they're suffering because of their sins, and, and so much so that they don't have the, the requirements for various offerings. They can't worship. Their sin had put them in a place uh, where they weren't able to worship. And Joel writes, hey, you think that's bad? You think this plague of locusts is bad over here? There will be a day where there'll be an actual locust swarm that will look like an army. It'll, it'll be a day of judgment. You think this is judgment. It's really a foretelling of what is to come in the future. And this day, again, will be the day where, where, either the, where the righteous will be vindicated and the unrighteous will be punished. And what Joel tries to communicate is that don't let this pass you by. Your current circumstance is a means for you to lift your head and to look to the future and to prepare you for that future day. And notice how that is eerily similar to what we're looking at here with the jailer. There is an earthquake, and it is terrible. I mean, look, look, how, look how Luke writes this. He, he talks about the, the light coming in, and he says it's, it's rushing. He, he called for lights and rushed in. We don't know if it was the lights or the jailer. It's like, it's like synonymous. Like they're, they're both at the same time rushing in to Paul and Silas. They're trembling with fear. They're trembling with fear because he is very aware he, there's terror, there's isolation, shame. Because he views it as divine. I mean, the, the question alone when he says, what do I do, what must I do to be saved? I, I, I think that we can infer here that he gets that they were wrongfully persecuted and that this, whatever is happening in the prison, is by their God. And notice how Paul reacts and cares for them, cares for his physical needs. A man at the end of his rope about to kill himself. And a minister of the gospel says, very practically and very helpfully, I'm here. We're all here. We're not gone. And notice how he cares for his spiritual needs. He doesn't withhold it. There's no bitterness. He's not upset. I just, yeah, I am so grateful for the example of Paul and Silas in this moment. Because we could just say, you know what, I'm not, I, why, why am I sharing the gospel? I'm going to sue you. You know, like that would be, that's the reaction of 21st American uh, to, to like, no, 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 no. I need my pound of, of justice. And then when you're in jail, I'll share the gospel with you. But no, what does he do? He shares the gospel with him so faithfully, so lovingly, because again, what God has done for him, what, what the jailer's done to Paul pales in, com in comparison to what he has done against his creator. And so we see that the, the first responses of timidity and, and terror from the jailer, 
But the second response from the jailer, when he responds to what must I do to be saved, believe in the Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he moves from death to life. And, and, and Schnabel, unfortunate last name, in his commentary says this of this episode, joy is a sign of the presence of both salvation and faith. Faith in Jesus, the Lord who saves, triggers joy at the presence of the Lord. The jailer met the Lord in the middle of the night in the house of a jailer. And so he moves from isolation to fellowship. We see that the family, the the idea of this isn't like uh, um, infant baptism text where it's like, oh, look, the household, so there must have been babies, so let's, like, that must be it. The idea of this is you're supposed to compare jailer first the first part, his first reaction, he's alone. He's amidst rubble. He's terrified. He might kill himself. Over here, he's joyous, surrounded by fellowship of his family. His family comes to the Lord. That is meant, Luke is trying to communicate to us, the gospel is rich. It is, it is life-changing. It's good. Moves from despair to joy. So the, the application for this part, the, the, the things that we can observe is suffering well. Suffering reveals our theology. Suffering reveals our theology. When you suffer, you don't get to skip how your heart responds, like those pesky YouTube ads, you're like watching a video, and it's like, hey, let me tell you about progressive insurance. No, I'm here for a video. I don't want, I don't want this. I don't want this. Our circumstances, we don't get to skip the advertisement of what's going on in your heart. You don't get to skip it. There's no skip button. It reveals what we think of the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the patience of God, the goodness of God. And again, that's why we do well to prepare for it, to store up in our hearts who God is and what he's done for us. And when we prepare, you will encounter the transforming effects. This is what CJ, my pastor, says, and I think it's one of If we can get this principle, if we prepare, we will encounter a transforming effect of a divine perspective. The transforming effect of a divine perspective. And when we suffer, we often get, and we will get, why questions. We'll, we'll get every, and it's appropriate to ask why questions. Every time we suffer, why? Why did it happen? And underneath of that why question is a larger question. Is God for me? Or is he against me? And you can ask those why questions in a humble way, but you can also ask them in an arrogant way, which that would be wrong. That would be sin. And Christian, there are some things which I think we all have experienced. There are some things that we suffer and there are some tears that we cry that only Jesus will wipe away. That is the honest truth. If you're looking for an answer to all of your why questions in this life, you will not get it. And again, if that is your hope, if that's what your happiness is tied to, but why questions should lead us to a greater question. Not why did this happen to me, but why did Jesus suffer for me? And that's what we see with Paul and Silas in that jail. Uh, Eliphaz to Job and Job 
chapter 4, he says this. Remember to Job who's suffering. Remember who, who was innocent. Who that was innocent ever perished? Jesus. He was an innocent man. And he suffered for us when it should have been us on that cross. And so this momentary afflictions, our only hope, our only refuge in this storm is Jesus Christ, which lastly brings us to salvation. I want you to see this, that the urgency and the dangerous need of our salvation. That earthquake revealed to the jailer a spiritual need. And our circumstance, again, is revealing our heart. If you are suffering and you don't know the Lord, do not let that earthquake pass you by. That is God trying to show you your desperate need of salvation. If you die today apart from the Lord, there is no hope because it is all of your works on the table. Whereas for Christians, we're not better than anybody else, but when I stand before the table of God, I don't empty my pockets while I went to Sunday school and I preached at Providence Community Church. No, I, I am lugging the cross of Christ and I'm throwing it before the Lord. And Christ is the one doing it. And he says, I, hey, Caleb, I vouch for him. All of what I've ever done, my righteousness for him, his sin. It's been paid, he's adopted. The time to trust in Jesus is today. It is today. And that also brings us to the idea of evangelism. There are earthquakes happening all over the world, all over Kansas City, waiting for a Paul and Silas experience. Paul and Silas answered the Macedonian call, and we as Christians have the Great Commission. Go therefore into all nations and make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's our call. We have a Macedonian call. And there are men and women who are at the point of despair wanting to take their own life because they see no hope, waiting for Christians to answer the call, to answer the call and to share the good news. And I love the fruits of the salvation experience of the jailer. This is the good news. We move people. We're helping, we're helping people come to light and to life. Last thing I want to say about the jailer, I just think this is too good not to share. When, when, when he washes their wounds, his, notice his heart change. He's eager, he's eager to help them. He's washing their wounds. And the literal translation, when, 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 it says, when he says he washes them, he washed their wounds, literally it means by washing, he freed them from the effects of the blow. By washing, he freed them from the effects of the blows. There is a physical response. There is a tangible reaction to the gospel. Christ washed his wounds, his spiritual wounds of sin, and that had an effect. And then lastly, I think this is the best point to end on in this passage. He's with his family, and they're rejoicing around a feast. Guys, Thanksgiving is coming up, and as Christians, when we sit around the table, and we're all battered and bruised by suffering, maybe someone's not there that you miss terribly. Maybe you're with, there's a fight going on. There's all kinds of 
joy-stealing opportunities at that table, our hope of joy is in the cross of Christ. And we can be joyful just like a Philippian jailer can be joyful in the bottom of a crushed jail with his family. We can be joyful in our circumstances because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the cross of Christ. We are grateful that you have paid for our sins. Would you please give us a divine perspective on our life? May we better see what our suffering entails. And Lord, though suffering occurs, both because of the world that we live in and because of the gospel that we herald, Lord, we trust in you, and we believe you to be our anchor of hope. And we pray for, I, I pray for, for this church, Lord, and for this city. Would you mobilize us to share the gospel to a dying world, our only hope? May we, may we, as we have learned from this story of how the gospel went to an area that needed the gospel, may we also be quick to share the gospel, to share the love that we enjoyed, where our Wounds have been cleansed spiritually. May we be quick to wash the wounds of others. It is in your mighty name that we pray all these things, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Caleb. I was struck by how all three characters in this story uh, Lydia, the jailer, and the, the woman, the, the girl, the, the slave girl, were all living fundamentally kind of transactional lives where their worth to the world was dependent on their performance. And so the jailer, when he doesn't perform, his relationship with the world is such that I have failed, therefore I am worthless. And the the, the slave girl's failure to perform made her worthless and even Lydia was you know uh, um, she, she, she was a retailer you know she she sold things so she had this sort of transactional way of viewing the world and then the gospel comes with this just shockingly freeing idea that the God who needs nothing the God that we sang about invites you to his feast that you don't deserve to be at and that you can't you can't even pay to get into even if you wanted to and so there's this tremendous freedom that i think god has helped us to see today through caleb's message and i just want to extend to you a reminder it's like there is the god of the universe who you can't bribe you can't impress he doesn't need you he doesn't need anything from you Nothing you have really makes, is a blip on his radar. And he has said in his word, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. 
Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Hear that your soul may live. Get, get, get out of that transactional life. It's, it's a slave driving kind of life. And hear this free offer from the God who can't be bought. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So today's the day to break out for the first time out of a transactional life or to break out again. Today's the day because you should seek the Lord while he may be found, and today's the day he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Christ and you've been broken free of this sort of your worth is attached to your, your production. If you've been freed from that and you've been adopted without any works by the grace of Jesus, then this table is the sign of that new covenant that he has made with you, this text refers to. So if you're a follower of Christ, come and celebrate this relationship you have that is uniquely free from transaction in, on, in terms of what you have to offer. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this, you've, you've heard the gospel today, and one of those characters in that story, that's you. You know, you are more a slave to sin than you realize. You are more caught up in performance-based relationships than you realize. You're walking more of a tightrope of being the man or the woman in order to impress others than you realize. And so the table's for you, too, because you can call out to Jesus today and receive this entirely free invitation to the greatest feast that exists. So would you come today and partake of the Lord's table with a heart of gratitude for the covenant that he has made that is based solely on the work of Jesus?